it's it's what I've done now for over 50 years carve birds and to me it's it's what I'm meant to do it defines me and it does because there's so many factors that goes into this into the carving you know the research you know the background uh, seeing it in life and and everything involved and uh, it all comes to a head when you're working in the wood and you know after doing it so long I, I really can't imagine doing anything else but That's decoy carver and 2019 National Heritage Fellow, Rich Smoker. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Carving decoys is increasingly recognized as an important North American art form. This is due in no small part to master carvers who elevated the craft to a complex and intricate art. People like National Heritage Fellows Lem Ward and Harry Shords, and 2019 National Heritage Fellow Rich Smoker. Rich Smoker has been carving and painting decoys for over half a century. He brings a keen sense of observation to the art, spending hours watching birds in their natural habitat and poring over wildlife books and images, and then applying those observations and research to his work. He's been named a living legend by the Ward Museum of Wildfowl Art, where he's since been named the museum's chairman of the board. And he was presented with an Achievement in Living Traditions and Arts, or ALTA Award, by Maryland Traditional Arts. But Rich Smoker doesn't just make brilliant decoys. He is also dedicated to making great decoy carvers. In his commitment to grow this art form, he's had well over 2,000 students as well as taking on apprentices. Decoy carving is a central art in the Chesapeake, which is one of the reasons why Rich moved to the Lower Eastern Shore almost 40 years ago from the Pennsylvania countryside. Originally from uh, central Pennsylvania, I was born and raised in a small town called Sealands Grove on the banks of the Susquehanna River. So I grew up on the Susquehanna River, uh, River Rat. and. Uh, and I still love it, without a doubt. You know, I have uh, coal dirt under my toenails yet from uh, Susquehanna, whereas now that I live on the big Anamesic River, I have marsh mud. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a mess trying to clean your fingers and your toes. You know, it's a, wow, well, what are you going to do? Now, how did you get hooked on decoys? Oof, that's a good question. I've always been a water person, absolutely fascinated by uh, running water, I liked hunting, too, because my family, that's what we did. We hunted, we fished, I would fish, and my dad had a couple of decoys, and he wasn't using them, so what the heck, I'll try it. So I grabbed uh, the decoys and went down along the river. Actually, the creek was a real shoal, and it was beautiful, and floated them. I was hooked. That was it. Floating sculpture. When I look back across it, it defined my life. Let's put it that way floating sculpture. When I could see that, surrounded by uh, fall colors, running water that was crystal clear, where I could see every rock underneath the water, it was just, why would you want to do anything else but this? And at that time, I had no money. Of course, I was in school, and my dad was the industrial arts teacher at the time. And back then, industrial arts meant uh, woodshop. So, you know, I take wood shop. I got A's because I like working with my hands. So I said to Dad about making decoys or, you know, where do we get decoys? He said, we'll make them. 
So we started making decoys when I was in high school. And that was, that was great because I would steal away from classes. I flunked French three years in a row <laughs> so I could go and make decoys in the wood shop. Tell me about the first decoy that you made. Oh, boy. As a matter of fact, I even have them here in my shop. I'll have the first ones that my father and I made together, and I also have the first one that I made by myself. So I kept those. My God, we thought we had done something. We made, my dad and I made um, six uh, mallards, four black ducks, and ten canvasbacks. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? It was 20, you know, and uh, it's really not that many. I know nothing. so That's fine. You know, and well, that's the beautiful thing about this art form. Not many people know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason why I'm tickled to death to get this NEA award, to get this thing out to the public. It's not about me. It's about the art form. But we made these decoys and we thought that we had done something. We had made stuff that, you know, nobody's ever made anything like this before. Boy, were we surprised to see what other people were doing. We actually went to a show. That was in the late 60s that we made those. And I think 70, 71, something like that, we went to our first show. It was an exhibition in Salisbury, Maryland. We drove from Central PA to Salisbury, Maryland for the Ward Museum, so Wildlife Art Expo. And when you say we, that's you and your dad. My dad and I, my mom. Three of us went. You can't get out of the house without mom. You know, mom was an artist too, so I mean, she loved to paint and do a lot of that stuff, so there wasn't any way around it, which was great. We went there, and I walked into the old convention center and uh, looked there, and all I could see was carvings. Carvings, paintings, you know, and stuff to make them with. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And to be honest with you, right then and there, I knew what I was going to do the rest of my life, and that was carve birds. And I worked towards that goal, without a doubt. And I'm still working towards that goal. Because if you ever get complacent, you know, you're just wasting your time. Now, the Ward Museum, it was named for the Ward Brothers. Tell me who they were. Jeez, I never heard the name before. (laughs) They, uh, without a doubt, icons. Uh, You know, in this area, you know, when you say the Ward Brothers, there's a number of different carvers that come, come to mind that really have set the bar really high. You know, these people have gone beyond just making decoys. They've made birds and they've made bird art. You know, when I first went to shows, I met the Ward brothers and talked with them, and it was still one of the high points of my my life, you know, meeting them and talking with them and, uh, um, you know, getting their guidance a little bit. I love the fact that they had a barber shop. Oh, they were both barbers. Yeah, that's... And their father was a barber. And all props to Lem, who's a National Heritage Fellow as exactly. well. Exactly. Uh huh. Exactly. Without a doubt, that's what makes this whole thing so just surreal for me, to know that Lem Ward was a, uh, a National Heritage Fellow, Harry Shores was a Heritage Fellow, and now I'm one. You know, and there's only been three carvers. I'm in really good company. That's phenomenal. But I know it's not exactly for just my work. It's for my work that you know I'm trying to teach people to show people that what we do is not a bunch of guys sitting around a wood stove chewing tobacco and making ducks. Um, You know, it's more of an art form than than what people realize. And it really is, without a doubt. That's the thing about folk and traditional arts, how that sense of passing down, of, of being handed something and then doing work with it and then passing it along for somebody else to continue mm-hmm. is so crucial. 
Well, it was described to me at one time, too. It's, it's not what we do in our lifetime. It's what we inspire other people to do in theirs. And um, I think truer words can never be spoken. I think that's right. Who's Mr. Diddy? Mr. Diddy. <laughs> Wilson E. Diddy Tech. Wilson Elwood Diddy. He hired me as an apprentice for taxidermy. I went and apprenticed with him. How did you ever find out? That's cool. Uh, he, I learned more about life. He was a curmudgeon. And he would never call you a dumb SOB unless he thought you were one. <laughs> you know, I worked with him for nine years, and it was a love-hate relationship. Some days I loved the guy, and some days I'd like to strangle him. But he taught me more about life and about anatomy, about birds, about animals, than anything that I could have ever done. It was a, a college course condensed into nine years. <laughs> For a man who never went to school, who never finished high school, he had a book collection that was just unbelievable. He had book collection that was, well, I know it was valued over a million dollars when he passed. Uh, he had uh, John Gooley Miles's books. I mean, it was one of like nine copies in the world. He had one of them and just absolutely loved every book that he owned. And luckily for me is I had interest. So I got to play with these books and he got me hooked on books and uh, as books as knowledge. Not to read them all, but you know, it was explained to me that uh, knowledge is not knowing something off the top of your head, it's knowing where to find it, find the information. And you know, that's one thing he showed me. I could do that with a book collection. Now the internet, you know, and uh, if you can find the information you want, I mean, that's paramount. What was it about taxidermy that, that drew you? Did you see a connection to carving? Not really at the time. What drew me was uh, the fact that, you know, I could work in this stuff. And what really iced the cake was I could go hunting in the morning and I could come in to work at like 10 o'clock and I could work a full shift, but I didn't have to be there at 8 o'clock. I could go out and sit on the river and uh, uh, see what's going on. Uh, to me, that meant everything in the world. It was about visualizing what's there, seeing things coming through, you know, the, the moving water, kicking over rocks and looking at things and seeing decoys float. And that smell. Oh, uh, yeah, you just can't. Once, once it's in your nostrils, you can't get rid of it. You just can't. Yeah, no, I agree. How long did you do taxidermy? I, I apprenticed with him for nine years. And uh, in the meantime, I was carving too. And as it worked out, he was a carver. Mr. Diddy was a carver, and uh, my dad and him got to be good buddies. So they would carve together. I would leave, you know, at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, whatever, and my dad would come in, second shift. And they would carve, um, you know, all evening. As a matter of fact, when I would come in in the morning, their stuff would be out on the table, you know, and I would look at what they were carving, and it's like, well, these guys don't know anything. You know, <laughs> yeah, these guys don't have a clue. So I would pick up their stuff and start working on it. And, uh, boy, I got in so much trouble with that. Don't touch our stuff. Carve your own stuff. So I was carving my own stuff, but, you know, I was trying to help them. Uh, the taxidermy, what it taught me was the anatomy. It taught me how to take notes, how to talk. And it taught me everything that I need to uh, write down about, you know, what's important. What's this color? What was the color of the bill? What was the color of the feet? You know, with the beautiful thing about taxidermy was you have to have the inside right to make the outside look right. From taxidermy, you work from the inside out. With wood carving, you work from the outside in. But you still have to know what's on the inside. So what led you back 
to carving and, and curving full time. I, I worked apprentice with uh, with with Mr. Diddy for nine years, and you know I got married and decided to open up my own shop. I went out on my own as a taxidermist. Um, so in the meantime, I was carving, and I wanted to do nothing but uh, with uh, birds, all the avian forms. So I opened up my own studio, and in the meantime, I would start carving, you know, when I was slack or anything like that. Uh, and it would give me more time to carve. That meant everything. And I realized that when we went to that show, that's what I wanted to do. So this was a self-help course to get to that goal, and that's exactly what I did. Um, you know, I treated it as such. So I could, you know, achieve my goals. I want to talk about different types of decoys okay. for people who who know nothing about them. And we're and I will go into that camp. There are working decoys, mm-hmm. and then there are decorative decoys. Can you just explain the and difference in the work that goes into? Sure, uh, working decoys. It's a decoy that is made to be utilitarian. It can be hollow. It can be solid. Uh, it can be painted with, uh, you know, water-based paints. It can be painted with uh, oil-based paints. It all depends on the artist. It can be painted uh, simple. It can be painted real fancy. It can be a block of wood with just a cut-out head on it. It can be a marsh tump turned up with a shovel with a stick on it for a head. It can be just about anything. It can be a Clorox bottle. Those can all be working decoys. Then you have uh, decorative decoys. Now that fits into a number of different things. You can do it like the smooth bird, you know, with no, uh, no real feather carving or no real feather detail. Everything is painted on it. Or you can get into the real decorative birds where each feather is individually carved, textured, and uh, painted, you know, that way. Um, so those are really fine detail and, you know, everything is made. Uh, all the habitat that the bird sits on, rocks, trees, you know, anything, anything involved is handmade. You know, that's the most fun is trying to put it all together. Are there other materials other than wood that you use for structure or for strength? Sure. Um, I use a lot of different woods. If I'm making a decoy, I want to try to, um, you know, to use nothing but wood. If I can, you know, to fortify some areas, I'll use brass rod and, uh, you know, make feet out of copper. I use brass also for that. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things. You're only bounded by your, your imagination, really. And we talked about what a smoothie is. Yeah. What about a shooting rig? Oh, a shooting rig. Okay. That is what we define it at at the Ward Museum. Uh, we have a category uh, called SR, which is shooting rig. And the qualifications for that is you have to have three birds, and they can be, they're supposed to be a drake and a hen, and the third bird can be any bird that you want it to be. Um, when I won that, that world championship, it was a, a pair of red-breasted mergansers and a red-throated loon is what I won with. World championship? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is huge, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah. Um, I also had won a uh, third best in the world uh, in miniature, decorative miniature, and that was with a long-eared owl. That was fun. You know, I really love doing that stuff. Um, I have backed off competition of late because I pick a lot of the judges for the world championships now and I don't want that uh, idea of collusion involved with anything with the ward so you know it just seems easy to uh, say well I just won't compete 
I'm curious. There are so many skill sets involved in this. Mm-hmm. I, I have a sense of how the carving skill set came to be. But what about the painting? Was that trial and error? Oh. How did you figure out what paints to use and how to mix them and seal them? And painting is so complex. Oh, it is, without a doubt. And you have so many different mediums. That's a good question. When I first started, you know, Dad and I made the rig of decoys. We used oil paint. And it was... Uh, and you could buy the kit. You know, you got a, a, a pint of uh, decoy white. You got a pint of decoy black. And you got the uh, mallard gray, you know, and you would, you know, put them on accordingly to what their directions would be. So uh, you realized after a while that, you know, life ain't all about that, you know, so you have to do your own. So I started out with oil, oil paints, because they're so easily to blend. I loved it. But I hated the open time. I hated, the, you know, it take a couple of weeks to set up and dry. And, you know, geez, I'm, here I am, 16, 17 years old. You know, let's move on. So I switched over to acrylic and um, started learning how to do that. And I came with a, uh, an oil painter's mindset, learning how to blend color. And to this day, I use a lot of uh, gouache, opaque watercolor, acrylic, and I blend them just like I do oil. And I do a lot of oil painting, too. Um, I just absolutely love all those mediums. And each one has its uh, pluses and has its minuses. But, you know, frankly, I'm able to uh, work up both of them the same way. You know, the whole thing of painting is don't be intimidated. You know, just get in there and have fun with it. I never went to uh, painting classes, per se. Um, Everything was trial and error. I mean, I had art in high school, and that that was a blast. And, and thinking about the Ward brothers mm-hmm. and how important carving is to the Chesapeake and to yep. the the Lower Eastern Shore, whether it changes stylistically from region to region, are there some regional differences, like in Maine or the Mississippi Delta, for example? Definitely. Uh, every region has its own quirks, if you will. Just on the Chesapeake, you know, you go up to the top of the bay in Haver de Grace area, most of all of those decoys are round-bottomed and solid to run the currents up there. Down here, if we had solid um, round-bottomed decoys, all they do is roll because we have short, choppy waves down here constantly. And most of those decoys with narrow chests and wide hips. So you had a narrow chest but a real big rear end, if you will, uh, and they were flat-bottomed. And what those did was they rode the waves so that they would act like a boat. And, uh, you know, they would handle the short, choppy waves that we have down here, more so than something that was solid and round-bottomed. You go to Shankatig, and most of those decoys were roundish bottoms uh, for the same thing, for the short, choppy waves that are over there. And quite frankly, what I have done with with my decoys here in this, uh, you know, on the river is I've married Shinkatig with with, uh, Somerset County is, uh, you know, I go with a a wide beam and uh, flat bottom and some of them are solid. So it all all depends on what you're trying to do, but you have to know your water, what you're trying to make them for. You know, I take my decoys and go places. You know, I put them in a bag. I'll go up and hunt with my brother or I'll go to Shankatig or, you know, various places. We'll put our decoys out. And uh, I get to see if they work well on that type of water. Now, what brought you to Somerset County? 
I got lost. Oh. Couldn't find my way out. <laughs> and you've been here ever since. Oh, yeah. Oh, 37 years. Um, actually, uh, I went out on my own as a taxidermist in uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, my wife was teaching school. And we both realized that this isn't what we want to do the rest of our lives. I didn't want to do taxidermy the rest of my life. And, and you know, carving it in that area wasn't going to work because people really didn't, you know, equate, oh, you make ducks, that's nice. You know, how much is that duck? Well, I'm not giving you $35. You know, so um, I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to go someplace where I at least have a chance. And my wife uh, was teaching high school math and realized if she didn't do something, she was going to teach high school math the rest of her life. So um, she applied for a job down here. I mean, I can do whatever I do anywhere. And if it's on the shore, so much the better. So she came down in the first place um, that she interviewed, hired her. And uh, the rest is history, so to speak. That was August. We moved. She moved down in September. I came in October. And we've been here ever since. And you're in this beautiful, beautiful house on the water, and it's it's just fabulous. Tell me about your I day. Do. I want to hear about your work day. What time do you get to just walk me through your work day? <laughs> I'm generally up before dawn. You know, sometimes it's 4 o'clock and sometimes it's 6. It depends. And uh, in the summertime, I get to look at uh, Martin houses. You get to watch the birds. So I'll watch them and uh, while the coffee's being made. Oh, my God. I mean, that's phenomenal, watching the world wake up. I'll go to work uh, here in my shop. and uh, Which is attached to the house. Without a doubt. It's a two-car garage that's been converted into my studio. I say studio because that's a neat term. I like that a lot. But it houses everything that's me. Uh, lots of wood, you know, all the tools of my trade, all my hand tools, all my power tools, all my brushes, everything. Um, it's, it's me. This is it, my book collection, my antique decoy collection, some of it, uh, my antique decoy books, you know, it's all me, it's all here. Uh, it's everything that I need to uh, keep my mind from wandering. Now, what about your tools? What tools do you use? Oh, boy, it all depends. You know, I think in my uh, first knife I ever bought was um, $3.95, and it was a German carving knife. My dad didn't even have one like that. You know, I thought, man, I am uptown. Probably have 80 knives in my collection now. What I have done is regrind a lot of them and made them that would suit me. And consequently, a company uh, up in Salisbury, Maryland, Knott's Knives, have taken my patterns and now are marketing the Smoker series of knives. So that's kind of cool. That is very cool. Are you yeah. kidding? I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. And I use my knives exclusively. So uh, that means a lot to me. But, you know, when I had carpal tunnel, I had both hands uh, redone. During that time frame, I couldn't use my, my hand tools so much because my hands would lock up. So I was using power tools. And, you know, I got pretty efficient with power tools. And I still use them quite a bit. But, you know, something about working with wood and using a hand tool that you have to do. You have to feel the wood to, to understand how it's working. I do a lot of rough out with a hatchet or a draw knife. And, you know, I just absolutely love to feel how the wood works underneath a hatchet blade. You know, I have a number of hatchets that I use that, um, you know, I've modified for myself so that they work out really well. And it, and it just flips people out to see you use a hatchet. You know? I think that would be a lot of fun, actually. You know, what, what really gets me is I get to go to uh, Library of Congress 
you know, and they want me to chop a decoy while I'm there. Last time I was at the Library of Congress, they threw me out because I had a pocket knife that my dad gave me that was an inch and a half long. They said, you can't come in with that. We're going to confiscate it or you have to go outside and bury it. I went outside and buried it. Now I'm going to walk in with a hatchet. <laughs> is it poetic justice? It is. And remind them. <laughs> well, you can bet on that. Yeah. yeah. You are also a great believer in giving back. Oh, that's all. That's what it is. I can intuit why that would be important, but can you articulate why that's so important to you? Gee, I think this, this art form, we're all in it together. To me, I decided that there's no secrets. There's no secrets. You know, uh, what I'm finding is there's so many people out there that don't have a clue. You know, they don't know where to start and they're afraid to ask. They're afraid to do anything. So, you know, I'm more than happy to help people. You know, and that's what teaching classes has done for me. Taking on apprentices, people that call me and say, how did you do that? Or how would I blend this? You know, it's a, no big secret. You know, it just takes work, plain and simple. So you try to help everybody. You've had over 2,000 students. Yeah. You know, I think the last I counted, it was over 2,600. And, uh, and that's, that's been years ago. To be honest with you, some of those have been counted more than once because they come back. I just counted numbers. But a lot of them have come, and uh, I think my biggest, uh, I guess you could say it would be the, the biggest congratulations you could possibly get is when people would come to a class, take the class, and you wouldn't see them again. They learned what they needed to know. You've helped them, and you helped them over the hump. And that's, that's great. You know, They go on their way, and they're going to do it their way. You know, they don't need to stick around and do it my way. You know, I'm here to help them to get their own ideas. And so I think that's all of it. And your granddaughter carves. Yes, she does. You know, the beautiful thing is my family. You know, my dad and I started carving. Dad hated to paint, so my mom would start painting some of his stuff. Consequently, with my mom painting things, two of my sisters got involved. They carved. They painted a little bit. They did uh, enough to, to enjoy it, but they kind of drifted on. I had a niece. Uh, and a nephew that carved, you know, my daughter carved, and now my granddaughter's doing it, and she's nine. She's doing great, other than she tells me, she said, you know, this is boring. <laughs> so <laughs> my granddaughter seriously has a gift. She can realize form, and she can also uh, pick up a paintbrush and do a pretty good job. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to try to keep her on a straight and narrow. <laughs> so. You're the chairman of the board? Oh, at the ward? At the ward I museum. Am, I am chairman of the board and directors. And named a living legend by the <laughs> ward museum. Oh, uh, and my wife says I'm a legend in my own mind. <laughs> For people who might not know what the ward museum is. Uh-huh. It's the uh, world's biggest collection of wildfowl art. It's housed in Salisbury, Maryland. It, you know, we have an executive director, and I think we have pretty close to 20 people working there. It's the biggest collection. We have well over $7 million worth of uh, artifacts in our collection. We have ongoing exhibits constantly. Um, We have a number of them coming up. That's just, I'm on the chairman of the curatorial committee also. So I get to play with all the uh, items that come in and, oh, it's terrible. It's like the fox watch in the hen house. Yeah, I bet it is is. too. But uh, it's something to see. When we talk about this as an international art, and I should have mentioned this earlier, how does decoy carving change around the world? Where else are decoys coming from and how different are they? I'm just so curious about that. Well, you know, that's a great question. 
because we have competitors from all over the world. Uh, we have a regular con contingents uh, from uh, Japan that comes, and they bring mostly all decorative birds. We have a lot of people from Russia, Germany, France, England, you know, Mexico, Canada. You know, not that Canada is a foreign country. Uh, we've had Australian. Unfortunately, a lot of times when people are coming from away, are coming here to compete with decoys, this is decoy king. There's only two native art forms that I know of that were originated in the U.S., in North America, decoys and the banjo. And decoys have gone to, uh, you know, it's rocket scientists here. I mean, these guys are just phenomenal when they're making decoys. Most of the f people from away have a tendency not to be able to compete against them because the bar is set so high. But decorative, the Japanese are phenomenal. I mean, intricate. Oh, my God, intricate. You know, and it's just beautiful to see. It's poetry in motion, watching them assemble their pieces at the world championships, you know, just seeing these things. But, uh, you know, it's tough to compete against North America because this is where it really originated. And, uh, you know, they have just kept going with the whole thing. We've talked a, a bit about you being named a 2019 National Heritage Fellow. Can you just tell what does receiving this award mean to you? Oh, uh, boy. I, I'll be honest with you. I was told that I was being nominated for it a couple years ago. You know, to me, it was like, well, I, if I never get it, that's fine. You know, because just being nominated. How many people get nominated? Not all that many. That's a whole country out there. But when I got a call from a congressman, I finally asked him, I said, yeah, okay, who is this really? Come on. You know, who are you pulling my leg? Come on. You know, I said, no, no, that's the truth. So, you know, I'll be honest with you. I, I, don't get, I don't get misty often, but that one broke it out. I had tears coming down my cheek. I could feel it, you know, and uh, was sitting there thinking that, my God, this is the cherry on top of a whole career. Bad thing is one of my customers walked in while I was, you know, listening. And uh, he said, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, oh, I smashed my hand with a mallet. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and now I'm going to hit my foot. So, right, because you're not supposed to tell anybody for a while. Exactly. There's the period of silence oh, until yeah. it's public. Oh, that was tough. That was tough. To be frank with you, it means more to me that the art form is going to get recognized again. You know, I, I think this is more about the art form than it is about me. I'm just the, you know, the banner. Uh, I want people to realize that you know, this is not just some backwoods sort of thing. This is, this is truly an art form. And, and that's really what it means to me. Congratulations. I can thank say that. You. Oh, really? Yeah. Deep uh, congratulations. Well, yeah, I thank you. It, but like I said, I, you know, I don't take congratulations very well because I, I just shrug it. And it's like I said, it's not about me. It's about the art form. I think it can be about both. Truly, thank you, thank you Rich. Oh, it was a blast. Thank you. Good. That's Decoy Carver and 2019 National Heritage Fellow, Rich Smoker. The National Heritage Award is our nation's highest honor in folk and traditional arts. And if you're in D.C. on Friday, September 20th, come to a free concert that will feature performances, demonstrations, and stories from the 2019 National Heritage Fellows, including Rich Smoker. It's at Shakespeare Company's Sydney Harmon Hall. Get more information at arts.gov. And if you can't come to D.C., don't despair. You can watch a live webcast of the concert at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. 
You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do. And leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.